0: What's the current best approach to the management of otitis media? You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Richard Rosenfeld. Dr. Rosenfeld is a professor of otolaryngology at the State University of New York Health Science Center and chairman, Department of Otolaryngology at Long Island College Hospital in Brooklyn, New York is the editor-in-chief of the journal Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery and chairs the AAO HNS Guidelines Development Task Force. Today, we'll be discussing best practices in otitis media. Welcome, Dr. Rosenfeld.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: There certainly are several guidelines for the treatment of otitis media. From your perspective, and you've probably seen some that didn't even make it out of the cutting room, What do you think is the best approach to treatment today?
1: Well, we've got to start by distinguishing two types of otitis media. The first being acute otitis media, which is the common ear infection that uh, children get. And the second being otitis media with effusion, also called middle ear fluid or ear fluid, which affects children and some adults. So I'd like to start with that distinction, and you let me know which we should uh, attack first.
0: Let's do the acute otitis media first.
1: Ear infections are ubiquitous. They're basically an occupational hazard of childhood for most (laughs) kids, and it's almost impossible to pass through childhood now without getting at least one or often many. So the best approach begins with making an accurate diagnosis, which requires having a buildup of pus or fluid in the ear, not just a red eardrum or some ear pain. And once that's made, the best management guideline is that of the American Academy of Pediatrics, published in 2004, which uh, includes the American Academy of Family uh, Physicians as well. And that guideline proposes stratifying your treatment on a few factors, and I'll mention those, and then you can let me know how to proceed. The key factors being, number one, the age of the child, and number two, the certainty of the diagnosis.
0: Okay, and where do we go from there? Let's start with the age of the child and I know you're involved with teaching diagnosis of otitis media. So tell me how good the medical students and interns residents of today are at actually diagnosing and distinguishing between the two.
1: That's a great question, and I think probably they're much better at treating a ruptured appendix and an exotic uh, craniofacial problem or airway problem than managing these bread-and-butter ear infections because it is difficult to make the diagnosis. But let's start first with age. Uh, The reason we look at age is children below age two have not really developed much of an immune system, and they're not able to fight ear infections on their own. Particularly in the first six months of life, there's almost no research in this area. So for kids six months or younger that have an ear infection, we always recommend antibiotic treatment. For children between six months and two years, generally antibiotics are also recommended for an accurate diagnosis because of the limited immune system at that age, the potential for complications is greater, and also we have less research available. Ages two and up, there's quite a bit of leeway to observe without antibiotics, but let's first just review the issue of diagnosis. Diagnosis for an ear infection is very hard to make, even though it's a, a ubiquitous problem. And the reason it's hard is you have to verify if there's pus or fluid behind the eardrum, not just see a red ear or have a child with some ear pain. And to do that requires getting a good look down the ear canal, which is narrow, obstructed by wax, and the kids are always jiggling and wiggling. So it's hard to see the eardrum sometimes, at least clearly. And to tell if there's fluid behind it can be tough. We can tell sometimes we see pus actually in the ear canal or or some fluid behind the eardrum, or we use pneumatic otoscopy to sort of jiggle the eardrum, and if it doesn't jiggle well, that would suggest fluid. But these skills are not universally taught in residency and and training programs, so they kind of have to be acquired on the fly.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that cleaning the wax out of the ear isn't even taught in medical school.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right, and Cleaning the wax has become such a problem that we're actually in the midst of finishing up a multidisciplinary national guideline on, on managing earwax uh, as well, which is coming out in September. But it's very tough, and it's tough to do it uh, without hurting the child or causing bleeding. But we recognize that, and at times we allow in our treatment paradigm the possibility of an uncertain diagnosis where you suspect it's an ear infection, but you're not sure. And if that's the case, you should ratchet down the use of antibiotics. So particularly a child who's age two and older, and you're not even sure they might have an ear infection, you can't see the eardrum well, hold off. Do what we call the observation option for those children.
0: But if they have pus, if they have pain, if they have fever, that group, it's reasonable to begin an antibiotic or not?
1: For children who are two or older and and have, have some pus and pain and fever, it's reasonable. You can never be faulted for giving an antibiotic for an ear infection, which is generally bacterial. But even with those things you just mentioned, the studies do show that about 80% of these infections get better on their own in about a week without antibiotics, with placebos. So I wouldn't recommend observation for a toxic child with 104 fever who who just looked awful, but for the average child with some low-grade fever, less perhaps than around 101 degrees, who doesn't have severe pain who's just not uh, toxic appearing, even with a real accurately diagnosed ear infection, you can hold off for two or three days and begin antibiotics if they don't improve on their own, which um, is generally about 20 to 30% of people might fall into that category.
0: I'd like to welcome those who've just joined us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Richard Rosenfeld, editor-in-chief of the journal Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. We're discussing best practices in the treatment of otitis media. Watchful waiting. Do you give these parents a prescription as some of the guidelines recommend or at least talk about and tell them to fill it if they're not getting better, or do you insist upon them calling you before you give that prescription?
1: No, Absolutely. If you just see somebody and you say, uh... Well, let's go watch and wait. Thanks for coming and waiting an hour in my office to be told to go home and watch and wait. That usually doesn't build your practice, and it's not good medicine. You know, watching and waiting is different than not treating. The first thing we tell everybody with an ear infection is liberal use of analgesics. So particularly things like ibuprofen, bedtime will help the child sleep. And during that first 24 hours, it's very important to continue ibuprofen or acetaminophen for pain relief. The second thing we do is we give them either a, it's called a safety net prescription or a, a watch and wait prescription where the parents are given an antibiotic prescription but told uh, and explained that there's an excellent chance their child will improve on their own within the next two or three days. If they seem to be getting worse at any time or not improving after two or three days, they should then fill the prescription, call the office, let us know what they're doing, and use the antibiotic.
0: I'd like to ask you about an article that appeared recently in the American Academy of Pediatrics journal Pediatrics by Sharon Maripol from the University of Pennsylvania. The article is entitled, Age Inconsistency in the American Academy of Pediatrics Guidelines for Otitis Media. And she says, in children less than two years of age, the AAP strategy increases sick days by 13 to 14 percent and costs by 178 to $283 for each avoided antibiotic prescription. Her point being that from a parental standpoint, it may not be unreasonable to treat. A
1: few things there. First, you just said under two. And the vast majority of people that are observed with otitis media in these guidelines are two and older. So it's a very small proportion of the under-2 group that would qualify for observation, and those criteria would be, number one, a child with an uncertain diagnosis in that age group, as well as having a non-severe illness, so fairly mild symptoms. That's a very small chunk of the pie of otitis media. Even if we accept for a minute that we're willing to observe those people, you're talking about a cost analysis with a lot of assumptions, which can take you down many paths, some of which end up being a bit fallacious. What's not factored into there is how do you save time and money by giving a child an antibiotic with a 10 15% incidence of diarrhea and vomiting that keeps them home from school because they're having diarrhea and vomiting that they could have avoided if they were just being watched and waited. So there's, there's a real cost of antibiotics, uh, some of which are obvious, allergic reactions, rashes, gastrointestinal upset, and some of which are not so obvious, the resistance problem being paramount, which in return for that little bit of boost you get from the antibiotic, you pay a big price later on in getting tough bugs that are tougher to treat and require more and more drugs. So I don't think it's as as clear and as rosy as a decision analysis might uh, state it.
0: The second point she makes, and I suspect your answer is going to be similar, but she says that with the age inconsistency, it says, when considering number needed to treat outcomes, if we are willing to treat 2.4 children greater than two years of age with antibiotics to avoid one sick day, then to be consistent, we should be even more willing to treat only 1.5 to 1.8 children less than two years of age, with antibiotics to avoid one sick day. Do you have a similar response to that?
1: Well, no, a little different. I, the issue of avoiding sick days is a bit nebulous. There are 13 randomized controlled trials that have looked at placebo or no drug compared to antibiotic for acute otitis media. A few of those trials have looked at the issue of, of sick days and other factors beyond just clinical improvement. Very inconsistent findings. One or two of the studies seems to show a half-day quicker return to activity or perhaps a day in some of them. But these are all secondary outcomes that have not consistently been shown beneficial across the studies. So to come up with numbers needed to treat, which implies a real somewhat delusory level of certainty about the outcomes, is a bit tenuous to me. I think it's something to consider, but again, it's not going to fit into that nice little rosy package of decision analysis because of many, many limitations in the studies.
0: So as an editor-in-chief of a journal, how does something like this get accepted for publication?
1: I think you decision analyses are fine and they provoke thought, but generally they're accompanied by a list of assumptions, and I recall in this article that the list of assumptions was almost as long as the article itself.
0: Yes, it was, several pages. And
1: (laughs) and that's fine. It's a valid approach, and it causes you to think about interesting things, but when you decide how you're going to act on this information and what you're going to do with it, to me, it raises a lot of caveats, some of which I know are expressed in the article, But there's a tendency to want sound bites, of course, and the title and abstract of an article make a soundbite much better (laughs) than the three pages of limitations. So I think it's worth publishing. It provokes thought and discussion. But to me, it's not going to change a paradigm of, of practice necessarily.
0: One final question, and that is, with watchful waiting, everybody's going to be concerned about any increase in unexpected side effects. Have you seen more mastoiditis or any other problems as a result of watchful waiting?
1: No, that was a, um, a theoretic concern that was quite vocal years ago. It, it's never come to be. In all the studies of mastoiditis out there, the vast majority of mastoiditis and other complications of ear infections occur in very young children, typically a year or younger, and almost all of them age two or younger routinely about fifty percent of these children have already been on antibiotics when they get their complication so giving antibiotics certainly doesn't prevent it for the very reason that these young kids are more susceptible is why we urge caution below age two and most of the observation applies to age two and older there has not been any upswing in mastoiditis in any country uh, that's been attributable in a convincing way to more watchful waiting. So the key is follow-up. If you don't have a follow-up mechanism, then you're always better off erring on the side of treating to prevent the complication.
0: I'd like to thank Dr. Richard Rosenfeld, who's been my guest, and we've been discussing best practices in the treatment of otitis media. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Please enjoy listening to our on-demand program library. Visit us at ReachMD.com and register with Promotion Code Radio to receive six months of free streaming audio for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888 mdxm 157. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.